0: Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. It's not if we experience tensions, it's how. Those are the words of Professor Wendy Smith, who was in Cambridge recently and guest lectured for our Masters in Social Innovation students. She discussed the power of paradox, adopting both and thinking for effective social entrepreneurship. Professor Smith is the founder and faculty advisor of the Learners Women's Leadership Initiative at the University of Delaware. She's also a research fellow with the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. I began the interview by asking Wendy why it is she researches paradox theory.
1: I am really intrigued by the question of how we make decisions, how we face competing demands in our lives, how we navigate tensions and tug of wars. And if there is a bottom line message that I think is important, it's that tensions, competing demands, tug of wars, the ways in which in both our individual lives, our organizational lives and our overall society, we get pulled in opposite directions, that It's not if we face those tensions, it's how. And we typically face those tensions in a way that we pull them apart and make a choice. We call that either-or thinking. It's traditionally what we do. It is uh, evolutionarily helpful to us, and it's problematic. Or we say it's limited at best and detrimental at worst. And what is intriguing to me is how we can shift our way of confronting tensions competing demands tug of wars to actually be more generative creative and sustainable and let us do better work in the world i'm curious what got you to that point i started out actually studying innovation so um in my PhD, I did my PhD at Harvard Business School, and I was studying how the top management teams of IBM were navigating uh, the ongoing tensions between managing for their existing world, operational success, their existing product, while simultaneously knowing that they had to change. There was a massive technological shift about to happen, which at that point was moving into what we now know as cloud computing or internet-based computing. And they had to move into that world, but they also had to maintain a commitment to their existing customers. Each of these strategic business units had you know, millions, billions of dollars on the table. And I was intrigued by how they were thinking about the relationship between their existing world, their, their operational success, continuing to do what they do, attending to their existing customers and at the same time trying to innovate and do new things. And what I found is that they had very different approaches to this tension that led to very different outcomes of how successful they were as business units. And that introduced me to there's something about the way that they are thinking about and approaching this tension that's really important to understand.
0: So I've been involved with the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation for about four years now. Um, and one of the words that I, I was very proud that I learned in terms of business was pivoting. Pivoting is now I'm listening to you talk about the tensions and, and the either or or the both and. Are you implying perhaps that pivoting is, is very black and white?
1: Well, I, I don't think it's black and white, but I do think... Um it's such a good question, because in the innovation space, there was this assumption that you just had to change and change quickly, rip the band-aid, move quickly into the new world. Uh, that's all nice and good, but the truth is, is that for many of these organizations, the existing world doesn't go away immediately. It's not like, at least at IBM as an example, that your existing world of their client-server technology immediately went away when the new uh, in cloud-based internet-based technology came in they overlapped for a significant period of time so while they were in the big picture over the long period of time pivoting and shifting uh, the assumption that you just have to move to the new world move fast and move and and you know assumes that you're rejecting the whole the whole current world and that's not the case that's not the case on the ground in reality Um, so it's not that pivoting is problematic in fact Experimenting is really important, but, and it's important to realize that there's this important overlap between our today world and our tomorrow world and we're constantly grappling with that. It's important to be adaptive and agile and changing and it's important to have stability and structure and consistency. So the question that we're asking is not if we should pivot it's how do we pivot while simultaneously managing structure stability and commitment. And by the way what we realize and here's the important thing as we go into thinking about social innovation because while I started in thinking about the innovation component about it and and how do we move to the new world and today and tomorrow what really then started to bubble up for me is that this kind of thinking that we can't and and again the thinking is we can't um either choose today or tomorrow. We have to focus on both and think about the relationship between them because in fact, that'll get us to a better place. This kind of thinking is true for all kinds of competing demands. So if we think about social innovation and uh, social responsibility, sustainability, ESG, social entrepreneurship, we can think there of the tensions, the tug of wars between managing for our financial bottom line profit, market-based business orientation and our social mission and you know purpose and and what's the relationship between the two of those well when i was um coming into before i did my phd i actually was a consultant a management consultant and people would consistently say to me they cannot coexist that a company cannot think about both of these simultaneously. Well fast forward now 20 years later and we say they have to coexist, how do we think about the relationship between the two of them? So that's what really captures my imagination right now. I've done some significant work around how do we think about what is what is this relationship between them? And this is where the word paradox comes in because if we shift our mindset from thinking about them as oppositional and think about them as paradoxical meaning that it is these two things the social and the financial the today and the tomorrow the global and the local the cooperative and the competitive these two things that are in fact in conflict with each other there is a tug of war there is a tension and at the same time they are interdependent they define each other they are reinforcing of each other and that tension persists over time that shift of focus on how we understand that tension will shift or open up a whole set of new possibilities of how we respond to the challenges we face.
0: Is there resistance then to um, understanding paradox thinking, to accepting that there are tensions and working with those tensions to be more successful?
1: Yes, I think there's resistance on all levels, which is why uh, this, so so I think the resistance comes in at a couple different levels. When I first started, there was resistance to the idea that paradox was a useful lens for us in terms of organizations organizing leadership and how we structure ourselves. Um, and I think the resistance comes up because uh, for, for a variety of reasons, Um, we are inviting people to move from a very linear rational model where we make clear decisions and move forward into a holistic interdependent and sometimes dynamic and sometimes irrational model well the reason we go with linear so either or thinking is very linear rational it's we have a we have a dilemma we have to make a choice we make a choice and then we stay consistent with that choice and again our our evolutionary history tells us that that's actually quite useful because when we have an outstanding choice to make it we almost feel anxious or fearful or or um all of these sort of emotions that once we make the choice we feel better about it uh And so that is incredibly valuable in the short term. Um, And our linear thinking where there's rational outcomes is actually helps us. That's what we want to achieve in the short term. Well, we're inviting people to say, actually, the world is a little bit irrational, dynamic, complex, holistic, and is... A world in which there are these two opposing things that actually if you bring them together there is more sustainable generative creative ways of thinking about things certainly in our world of organizing that was not that popular and in fact but and i like to say that you know we are late to the paradox party in the world of organizing because this notion that the world is more irrational, dynamic, synergistic, holistic. That idea of paradox, first of all, we're drawing on an idea from 2,500 years ago. This is an idea that came up in Eastern philosophy. It comes up in Greek philosophy with Heraclitus and this, and, and, and we're, you know, 500 BC. We've lost that thinking for many, many years, particularly in the West. And really in the last 100, 150 years, we see it popping up in other disciplines. It's the, the, the core underpinning, of physics and quantum physics. It's core to psychoanalysis, Jungian analysis, Kierkegaard. We in organizations who have been resisting this for so long, like it's almost, it's like it's about time. Okay, so that's the first piece. Now that we say, oh, maybe there's something here. And we've seen this start to pop up. We see consulting firms starting to talk about how leaders need to be paradoxical leaders. They need to honor paradox. Waterhouse Coopers has the six paradoxes of leadership and Ernst Young talks about navigating paradoxes a leadership quality. Uh, Now that we see that the question that we then have to grapple with is okay well if we believe that there's we have that it's not an either or if we believe that there's something about the both and if we believe that there are these paradoxes that we have to grapple with then how do we do it and in fact you know we, we wrote this book this book both and thinking in part because we've seen the world shift into using these labels of both and and paradox. And we, we, we wrote this book to bring together the expanding research in organizations and organizational theory to say, OK, well, if we're going to use that label, how do we do this more effectively?
0: You talk about um, organizers and leaders and organizations kind of being late to the party yes. of paradox. But how do you... I mean, first you have to convince them, the leaders, and then you need to get the leaders to trickle this to the rest of their organisation. And how do you do that? Or how do you encourage them? Or how do they do that in a way that is both productive and not tied up in, in language, perhaps, that is, is almost a barrier in a way. If you go to somebody who is... A junior software engineer and say, right now, paradox thinking, they'll get it but they may not understand necessarily straight away how it works within the company. How do you help with that?
1: Yes, well, I think there's two parts to that. The first is, um, when it comes to leaders, we're finding increasingly leaders are coming to us. So our colleagues, Michael Smets and Tim Morris and others at Oxford did a study with uh, Heinrich & Struggles and they went out and interviewed 150 leaders around the world, CEOs and leaders around the world. And what they found was that these leaders are all grappling with these tug of wars. How do we navigate the global and the local? How do we navigate the cooperative and the competitive, the today and tomorrow? And so giving them language around paradox is actually quite enlightening for them. So for the leaders who, for whom there's tug of wars come up strategically all the time, they're sold. So that's, the, you know, and in fact, they're coming to us increasingly now to say, gosh, like this is where, like I get it, this is what I'm, I'm grappling with. The second piece of that is, well, how do they then convince the rest of the organization to move forward with this? Because and um, we like our leaders to tell us do this and not to tell us do multiple things that seem like they're in conflict with one another. And what we found, so, so I think that is a spot on question, not easy. Um, and uh, what we have found is that there's there sort of I'll, I'll just put out two strategies that leaders use and I think that there's a whole number of them and actually in the book what we do is we break out a set of strategies for leader for individuals to use to engage in both and thinking and then for leaders to use and we break it out into four sets of tools but I'll just mention two that I think are at the top of the list the first is that I think to conti- it's, a, it's a continual invitation into thinking paradoxically. I think the first invitation is to constantly be changing the question that people are asking. And that's quite easy to do. And it's incredible how it opens up possibilities. So when we are sitting and having a conversation, a strategic conversation, and the either or comes up, the invitation is, how can you shift that to a both and question? So for example, I run a women's leadership center at the university, and we're constantly grappling with strategic challenges of who do we, are are we out there servicing, for example, the students or the executives? And so we're like in the, you know, the either or, we have limited resources, which is the, you know, who's our primary audience. And we have shifted the question, okay, well, how do we both serve executives in the community and students in a way that actually can reinforce one another because there's value in that interdependent relationship. So changing the question, and we know this from research, opens up our thinking to invite us into thinking about alternative possibilities rather than either or, which is asking us to make a direct and immediate choice. So one is changing the question. The second is that we have seen leaders amazingly use uh rhetorical devices and what i mean by this is metaphors and stories in order to invite people into this kind of thinking the beauty of a story is that or the beauty of a metaphor is that everybody can enter into understanding it at the level that they are at it's an invitation for understanding so for example we um Uh, have worked with and have done some research on a brilliant social entrepreneur, Zita Cobb, who runs an organization called ShoreFast. And the basic story of ShoreFast is that they're located in Fogo Island, Newfoundland, and their main focus is to try and redevelop a dying community so that they honor the traditions, the, the old ways of knowing, but bring them and modernize them and bring them into the new world. And so for them, they're grappling with old and new, tradition and modernization, global and local. And they as a, um, their core symbol is the cauliflower and they use the cauliflower because what they say is that what we are trying to do is to honor each community which are all these different florets on the cauliflower that are distinct from one another and that really blossom in their own way and the only way that they can really be uh, as fruitful as possible is if we have a strong global economy global core the core of the cauliflower that will feed them and yet they also then come back and feed the core so the relationship between the core and the expansive between the local is, is bound up in their metaphor of a cauliflower. Or we have, uh, I'll just give you one more example. We have a, we, we interview and have worked with um, Terry Kelly who was the CEO of W.L. Gore and Associates. Gore uh, makes gore Tex, which is the material, the product that's in guitar strings and uh, dental floss and uh, our jackets, our Gore-Tex jackets. And they had a real tension because they started out as a very committed to autonomy and empowerment small teams, which was amazing. except that when they grew to be something like thirty-five thousand people around the world all of these small teams running around in all these different places had no integrated enterprise-wide strategy so she was grappling with how do you introduce a universal enterprise-wide strategy while still honoring this culture of the power of small teams as they said and people were so anxious that as she was introducing this enterprise-wide strategy she would be taking away their individual autonomy and she and their team talked about this as breathing that in order to live you have to breathe in and breathe out right and so that's how that was the metaphor that she would use to reinforce it's not about small teams or global it's about thinking about the enterprise-wide strategy to service the small teams and vice versa so i think it's a important question a slow process and i think changing the question and thinking about the metaphors and stories that you use helps to really convey the complexity of this idea.
0: How does paradox thinking work in cultures that are not Western? Well,
1: there's so much to unpack there uh, as well. Um, You know, in eastern cultures some of this idea of yin yang thinking has sustained over the last 2500 years where in western cultures we've we've rejected and and dismissed it and yet what we find sometimes is that in eastern cultures a commitment to the yin yang actually is sometimes a commitment to the to the middle way that actually is this compromise solution that doesn't honor both sides but pretends to and so um so so Uh, there's both an understanding of yin-yang thinking and on the ground it can be uh, dismissive of yin-yang thinking because um, what we say has to happen in order for both and thinking to happen is that you have to take these opposing things and separate honor recognize what each is about in order to find the points of connection. What is it that we want about our global integration? What is it that we need locally? Or what is it about the existing product and the current world that we need to support? What is it about the future in order to find those points of connection and integration? Sometimes what happens in Eastern cultures is that there's such a focus on synergy, integration, and uh, compromise or minimizing the conflict that they don't first do the work of separating out. And what happens there is that while in the West, we can end up with a false dichotomy. We pull things apart and try and decide on them. You know, we've written about that in the East you can end up with a false synergy where it seems like it's a synergy but it isn't exactly and you have to bring those together I'll just say one more thing which is that we have colleagues who are doing really interesting work too, I mean it's not just East and West, right, in the global South and in Africa there's some really interesting thinking about the integration across opposing ideas, so the philosophy of Umbutu, which I only know such at a surface level, is about this question of how you know I am who I am through you this question of self and other and the boundary between them and how the collective feeds and defines the individual and the individual informs and is part of the collective so I think that there's really interesting thinking in
0: a lot of different places what is your message then through the book and through the research that you do
1: yeah well I'll go back to where we started which is that it's not if we face tensions it's how and tensions we tend to think of as a bad word and we want to transform that into a it's neither good nor bad it's how we respond to them and the invitation in the book the invitation in our work is to think about how our responses can be more generative by recognizing how often we either or thinking about the underlying paradoxes and shifting to both and and um, you know I really deeply believe that we are facing some pretty significant challenges in our world at the moment and um, I think this is a you know whether it's climate change whether it's global inequities whether it you know that this is a frame I think that can invite people into thinking about those kinds of massive challenges in new ways
0: and I think it's important for us to explore. We have corporations that are huge, 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 huge Um, and one will be delivering many Christmas presents this year, I'm fairly certain. Organizations like that, corporations like that, businesses like that where profit is God, is there a way for them to I want to say deconstruct who they are and restructure what they are and what drives them in a way that is perhaps more paradoxical and perhaps more equitable.
1: Um, One of the people that's a bit of my hero and doing amazing work in this space is Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever from 2008 to 2018. And what is so powerful is that he... Unilever is the packaged goods company. He entered Unilever in 2008 amid the global economic downturn and uh, when they were in what he called a death spiral. And he turned the company around in 10 years. And what's really powerful is that he made a commitment to, as some of the listeners might know, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, where they had a commitment to environmental, economic and social outcomes, environmental and social outcomes. And what was important is that they made a commitment to double their profits, economic performance, turning the company around not alongside, not despite, but through their commitment to these social and econ- these social and environmental outcomes that force them to be constantly innovating and trying new things and expanding, demonstrating to the world that this is possible. Now it's not easy, but it's possible. And what he has gone on to do is to work with and inspire large company ceos to figure out how they can do the same because as he says our world not just needs it demands it of us given where we are right now so is it possible yes is it hard yes uh what, what would it take it would take a commitment from the leaders at the top to be in this messy difficult project collectively in support of one another and in recognition that We are really short-term thinking if all we're thinking about is profit. Uh, We are creating profit for the immediate future and, you know, at the expense of the long-term future. So... Yes, it's possible. Yes, I would point people, we we feature Paul Pullman. We had interviewed him several times and we feature him in the book as an example of how do you apply this both and thinking. And I'm a huge fan, he just came out with a new book called Net Positive that explores more specifically how you do this very specific kind of work in companies. And I think people can look to that as an example of what's possible.
0: Finally, what is the title of your book and why should I read it?
1: <laughs> the book is Both and Thinking. I think, uh, I, so I invite people to read it. I would love to hear people's reactions to it. Uh, we have been talking about how this is a framework that can help organizations and organizational leaders uh, rethink and be more creative and sustainable and We approach this in the book about how this kind of thinking can help us in all kinds of places. So we think of this as a big idea. The more that we talk about these things, the more with people, the more that we think about how to apply them and we do this in the book how to apply them to our individual tensions that we face work in life work at home work at work uh tensions you know in parenting tensions in partnering tensions and you know in fact i was i was telling the story where i just gave a talk to a large company a technology company uh, about both anding in their company and someone came up to me at the end of it and said you know I think you just gave me a new framework for how to think about uh, my relationship with my ex-wife. So, you know, I I think that this is an approach that is valuable in all of our decision-making. We make decisions every day. So I hope that people can find value in these ideas and, and use them to come to more creative places in their own world.
0: That was Professor Wendy Smith, founder and faculty advisor of the Learners' Women's Leadership Initiative at the University of Delaware. And she is also the Deutsch Family Fellow. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and how to apply for the Masters in Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.